you don't have to feel lost when it comes to child custody decisions. In divorce, custody is one of the most critical decisions to be made on behalf of your children. In today's episode, listen as a team of experts provide support and information to help you understand how a local court system works while addressing custody issues, how the courts are trending in terms of custody arrangements, what your legal options are for reaching a custody agreement, and what children need most from their parents when negotiating custody. I'm Sharon Pastore, and this is the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Let's move forward. You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. Please welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to Be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. I'm very excited to be being, to be here today with our guest, Lenore Myers, on to discuss a topic demystifying child custody. And Lenore has a really unique view that she brings to this topic today. She's been practicing law with a concentration in family law in southeastern Pennsylvania for 28 years. Um, she recently has just joined the Mainline Family Law Center as a mediator, but she's also a custody conciliator for the Montgomery County, Pennsylvania family court system. And so she works inside the courts as a conciliator hearing custody um, issues and working with families. She's passionate about working with families and individuals who are transitioning through this life change um, and many life changes, be it marriages, separations, divorce, divorce, birth, birth or custody issues, because all these fall within the court conciliator um, role that she plays. And her goal is to help them obtain resolutions that will benefit the whole family and minimize conflict. And that is, of course, what we're here to talk about today, because resolving, understanding how custody works and coming to a healthy resolution around custody is really our focus for today and one of the most important things we can focus on in the divorce process. There's so much going on emotionally for individuals and families, and it's the kids who really don't have as much of a voice, and so it's on all of us as adults to keep bringing their voices to the surface, and so we're going to do that today. So, Lenore, I'm really glad to be welcoming you onto the call. I want to give you the opportunity to say hello and introduce yourself a little bit more to our callers. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to be here, and um, this area of the law, custody, has always been a passion of mine. Um, I have always wanted to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, and so my role as, as custody conciliator is very dear to me, and um, my goal is always to try and help families um, put the best interests of the ch- their children at um, first because they're in the best position to do that rather than the court system. Um, great. And so what I'm really hoping we'll do today, we're going to dive right in, is bring lots of information that shares, you know, what, how does this whole custody thing work? What are the questions and what parents can do to really help navigate through this process in a way that honors the best interests of their children? So let's 
dive right. I know that if I know that if I were, you know, standing in my shoes, what I want to do is just like at the end of the Wizard of Oz there, I want to pull back the curtain and say, you know, tell me how this court system works because, you know, those of us who are on the outside, we may see things on TV and we may, you know, see things from the outside. And so you give us the rare opportunity here to sort of pull back that curtain and, you know, give us a view. Like, how does the court system work when it comes to child custody? Well, first of all, what I like to tell people when they come to me with their custody issues is that the courts are not designed um, in, the, in the way that people think they are. They're designed to divide property and punish criminals. They're not designed to divide children and punish parents. So it's a, it, it's a very adversarial system, though, once you get into it, if, if you get into a custody trial. The courts generally are uh, adopting a view of trying to help empower parents to get past a lot of their emotional issues with one another in order to focus on the children's best interests and not give away their parental rights to the court to make these parenting decisions. So um, in most of the counties in southeastern Pennsylvania, parents are required to attend some kind of uh, seminar that uh, enlightens them as to the effects of divorce and separation and custody battles on their children, and then most counties require the parties to attend a mediation session in order to give them an opportunity to dialogue about what their issues are and hopefully come up with a uh, solution that's going to work best for their children. And then there's either uh, a master or a conciliator that the parties appear in front in front of. And the difference between the master and the conciliator is the master can be sort of a fact finder, and uh, and they can be the decision makers. So it's more of a court adversarial process. Um, Montgomery County is unique in that we are called conciliators, which means we're the peacemakers. And our job is more to help facilitate the agreements between the parents. We're not fact finders. We're not decision makers. And we try and focus the parents on what's in the best interest of the children. If the parents are not able to resolve their issues either before masters or conciliators, they then go on to a trial judge. And the trial judge hears all the facts of the case. They consider the 16 factors that are listed in the statute in terms of uh, looking at all the aspects of what would be in the best interest of the child in terms of a custody schedule, and then they enter the order. Again, though, really what they're doing is they're giving the parents a schedule. They're not fixing the dynamic of the family. They might order certain tools such as counseling to help the parents uh, work on their dynamic, but in the long run it still ends up back to the parents to uh, work together to make that schedule work for the children. So, Lenore, you raised something you, when you were first introducing the court system and you said, you know, what courts are designed or set up to do. And, you know, one of the things you said, like punish criminals or divide up property and things like that. And so one of the, you know, and I think it came back from the that in the past, family law has been dealt with differently, and maybe courts did step in a little bit more. But this idea that people will have time to get in front of a master or a judge 
to prove that they're the better parent or to prove the wrong that the other has done and that they should be punished. So, you know, where do we get that idea from? And, you know, how true or not true is that in terms of the reality of family court? I I think it comes from people's perceptions about um, the court system. They think that the court system is going to give them justice, uh, whatever justice means to them. But um, the courts really are attempting to apply the law, and the law gives a lot of discretion to the courts, um, but they they can't get into um, all of the minutia that goes into co-parenting. And so parents may come in and think that um, they're going to be vindicated or validated by the courts as being the better parent, when actually... That really isn't in service of the child. A child wants to be loved and supported by both their parents. And if the, each parent um, was able to put aside a lot of their emotions that they had towards the other parent and focus on what works best for the child, I think that would avoid a lot of trial issues because really a judge is a stranger in a black robe who really will never get to know you or your child and we'll just make the best decision based on whatever facts are before him or her and what their own bias or perception is in terms of best interest or parenting because the factors can be interpreted many different ways. Right, and I think when we were talking before, you said something to me like you could have anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes to present your case. So this is not an in-depth study per se, uh, where somebody really gets intimately involved in understanding the family and thinking about what's in the best interest, but it's a pretty brief period of time to kind of get to know what's going on and make a decision. In terms of a master, that is very true. It's very, you get very short shrift. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of a judge, you know, it's a very long process to get in front of a judge to have your case heard. Um, In Montgomery County, it can be six to eight months. In Philadelphia, uh, county, they don't even, the case doesn't even get looked at by any court master or judge for like a year. So, um, and even when you get that first tier, it is limited. It's maybe five to, to 30 minutes, as you said, and it's really just a stopgap. If the parties don't come to an agreement, it's just a stopgap approach until you would get to the judge. And again, that's months and months down the line. Right. So let's talk about, you know, a little bit more on the courts and then some alternatives since, you know, going to court from the description that you're giving doesn't sound like everyone's best option here. But in terms of how the courts are trending and even just how the legislation in Pennsylvania is trending in terms of um, custody, you know, we talked about, you know, is there a favor of the mother? Is there a favor of the father? Is there a favor? Like, what is the trending in terms of custody? And um, and then we'll talk a little bit about this best interest standard, which I imagine can be interpreted so many different ways. But let's just talk about the trends first in the court. Uh, the trends are, we they're starting to go more in the direction of a, a split custody arrangement or um, more of a shared custody arrangement. Um, you know, it it depends on the child's needs and the distance between the parents, um, their ability to cooperate, um, the activities of the child. But there's there's a leaning towards trying to give both parents as much time as possible with the child 
because um, the courts are recognizing that both mother and father are important to a child in terms of their upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of that, that leaning towards sharing a custody, you know, I know that people have written in with concerns, you know, what if I have a spouse who, you know, I think is an alcoholic or is an alcoholic? What if there's drug abuse? Or what if I think they're, you know, simply emotionally, not simply, but I think they're emotionally abusive? You know, where will the courts get involved and where will they not get involved? Or how does that impact their decisions about custody? Well, they certainly consider all of those factors. They they consider... um you know, whether the other parent is psychologically sound or um, how well the parties work together, um, you know, the the way that the parents interact with the child. Um, there are all reasons to uh, go in a different direction than shared or 50-50 where it would make sense for it to be in the best interest of the child to be with one parent more than the other. And in certain situations where it isn't safe for the child to be with the other parent, where there is a need for supervision or counseling before the parent and the child spend any time together. Um, and the courts will will certainly weigh all those factors and will make provisions uh, in their orders as necessary in order to protect the best interest of the child. So those are definitely factors that are considered in, in making a custody schedule. Right. Now, one of the things that, you know, when you and I spoke the last time we talked about is that my perception as the divorcing partner about, you know, the other parent being unfit might be different than the court's perception of the other parent being unfit. So where do, you know, divorcing parents and, and the court tend to see differently in terms of what makes someone unfit? Well, uh, you, you know, um, one parent may find the other parent unfit because they give their child McDonald's um, every every time they visit or two or three times a week, um, and or that um, they don't uh, always comb their hair correctly or they have a different bedtime. The courts are not going to look at that and make and make the determination that because of that somebody is unfit. I mean. When they're looking at a parent that's unfit, they're looking at someone that could um, be had such dangerous behavior that children and youth would be considered as looking into the situation um, where the child, his their health and well-being is seriously in jeopardy by being left alone or in the custody of this person. You know where they're really not caring for the children in terms of the basics, um, you know, a, an adequate place to sleep, uh, a safe place to sleep, um, you know, adequate clothing, being fed adequately, maybe not the same choice as the other parent, but, you know, that they're being fed adequately, that they're, they have somebody to supervise them based on their age and things like that. That's what the courts are going to look at in terms of fitness. In terms of preference, like I said, food choices, um, extracurricular activities, things like that. The courts are not going to necessarily deem a parent unfit based on those decisions. 
Right. And, you know, and I know I've had parents who say, you know, well, my child doesn't do transition, so they really need to have this amount of time or these kinds of things. And that level of parenting is still, I imagine, something the court does not get intimately involved with. That just like the parents would have had to work this out if they stayed married, that they're going to have to figure out how to work these things out when they're not married. Correct. Correct. And they're in the best position to do that because they're witnessing how the child's responding to these different situations. And it's always best for the child to have both parents on the same page in order to help um, help them through whatever difficulties they're having. Um, and that, you know, that's true whether the child's living with both parents on the, the same roof or two different roofs. Right. So, you know, just kind of bringing a little bit of closure to this court portion of our, you know, discussion, but it seems to me, you know, what we're saying is that, um, even in issues where one parent might have concern about the safety, you know, there might be a really big issue, they have to navigate through a system that might take, you know, six months to a year or more to resolve in order to get to a resolution through the courts for something that may even feel super important. So even if it's super important, it doesn't get resolved quickly. So, you know, for parents, it's really an important discernment or or thinking about which route do I take? Do I take a route that, you know, will help us to kind of maybe get through the trauma of this more quickly and see how we can resolve things on the other side? Or, you know, am I so concerned about this? I want to go through the courts, but I might be waiting for a year or longer to have resolution. So it can be really difficult place sometimes for parents there. Yes, definitely, definitely. And um, that's why the courts try and give them, you know, certain tools as they lead up into the court system, such as the seminars, such as mediation, to see if there is a way to work through it. Um, But, you know, at certain points, yes, you need to come to court. But most of the cases, I think, can be resolved in other ways that uh, address the best interests of the children. All right, so let's go to those other ways. So aside from going to court, and some people, you know, I've talked to are not even aware that there is another way. So what are the other options? If we don't take it to the court, how else could we go about resolving or working through custody issues? What are the other options? Well, you know, they can... Uh, if they are represented by attorneys, they can ask their attorneys to try and work together to facilitate an agreement. Uh, they can sit down and try and work it through themselves in counseling. And then another great option is mediation. Um, mediation is, is really a wonderful tool to help parties uh, hear the other side's concerns and then have a third unbiased party help facilitate or um, add options for the parties to consider in, in reaching an alternative in terms of an agreement. So now I have an important question here, and this is clarifying for me as well as I'm sure for other people, is to mediate my child's custody agreement and my parenting agreement, does that mean I have to be mediating my whole divorce? No. No. So can you tell not. us like what the difference is? Because I know, you know, Mainline Family is a mediation firm, and they'll mediate the entire divorce, which means the financial piece as well as the parenting piece. What does it mean to mediate the parenting piece if you're not mediating the rest of your divorce? It just means that that's the only issue within the whole construct of, of your transition, family transition that you're mediating. A lot of times these custody issues are coming up 
well after the divorce is completed. And so with a skilled mediator, they can um, help you refine the custody agreement as the child's needs change. Um, but also from the very beginning, the good part about mediating just the child portion is a lot of the emotions that are connected with the finances and the other things are put aside and they're focusing on the children and what works best for the children, which is really what you need to do. You need to leave some of those other unresolved issues that you have with your partner outside while you're just looking at what's important for the children. Right. So you said a couple things there is that one is that you can have a mediator, a parenting mediator up front. So if I'm in the beginning and I'm navigating my divorce, that we can have a parenting mediator that helps us to work out just that portion. And then that portion is sort of taken to our attorneys and integrated as, you know, with the rest of our agreement as we go forward through a divorce. And you also said it might come on the back end. So maybe we had an agreement, but now our kids are getting older somebody's schedule changed, you know, there was some big change in the family, and now we can go to a mediator after the fact to amend the agreement or make modifications. Is that correct? Exactly. And also, in terms of mediation, if the parties do come to an agreement, um, most courts have a, a format for custody orders. So that mediation agreement or the terms that they reached at mediation can be translated by the parties into the county's custody agreed form. The parties can just sign it and the courts will recognize it as an order. So uh, attorneys are not necessary uh, in that process as long as the parties are in agreement. And so how does, so it's almost like this is the one area of divorce agreements that you can reopen, right? You know, you can reopen it and amend it and, and modify it after the fact. Um, but so, yeah. Yeah, so um, where does somebody find one of these kinds of parenting mediators? I mean, if you are using attorneys for other parts of your divorce, how do you find one? Uh, you know, there's numerous ways. There's the Internet site. Um, there's Google. The various counties have lists of um, approved mediators for custody that parties can uh, contact. Um, and just any other resources in terms of families usually have some list of mediators that parties can can uh, access. Right. So my attorney might actually have some that they worked with in the past to do that. And what you're saying, it sounds like if I go to my local courthouse, that if I don't have any other way, I can go to my local courthouse and they should be able to give me a list of some people who do this kind of work where I am. Correct. Okay. So, and, you know, we can do all the other kinds of searching on the Internet and things like that, but since people are calling in from all over, you know, these are resources. This is ways that people can go, and they can go to the courts and get the names of people who will do that work. So I think that's really good clarification because sometimes people, you know, may or may not be considering mediation for their entire divorce, but they can mediate this portion of their divorce, even if they're not choosing that as a method for everything else. So let's go to... um you know, what happens if there's an agreement that's set and then one parent doesn't abide by the agreement? For example, it says, you know, somebody's supposed, one parent is supposed to get, um, you know, three days um, every other week or something like that. And then, you know, the parent who has 
perhaps a larger portion of the custody decides, I don't want to let them go to you today, or I don't want to let them go to you. You know, you can have them one day a week now, or one day now, as opposed to three days. So, what what do you do if one person, one parent, starts to not abide by the agreement? Well, if if it's a court order, it's enforceable in the courts, and you know, if it becomes a blatant disregard for the court order, then the parties can file a petition to enforce the order with the courts. Um, at some t- if it's already a court order, um, and we're talking about that particular missed visit or the like, sometimes, which I don't recommend, but sometimes parties do involve the police, and sometimes the police facilitate the transfer transfer of the child. But I think that's very traumatic for the child. And then, of course, there's always if there is a real reason that the order isn't being followed because some incident occurred and the parties have to consider changing the order and they still want to go through the mediation process, that's another way to go. But, um, you know, just that blatant disregard and where there is absolutely no dialogue in order for the parties to negotiate some kind of compromise, the courts, if it's a court order, will step in and enforce the agreement. And if the other party doesn't follow it, the courts have all kinds of options at their disposal to uh, fine uh, or penalize that person who didn't follow the order. Right. And so, you know, so these are the legal recourse. And as you mentioned, and I would concur here and put out there is that, you know, really our goal is not to bring this back into the court system because then the kids end up in the middle of a tug of war between parents, right? That parents are kind of tugging and leaving the court here and, and it can get ugly and it can take a long time and it tends to inflame the acrimony between to parents, you know, can they go, can you suggest co-counseling, um, co-parenting support that the two of you go to together? Can you suggest going back to mediation? You know, are there ways to have the conversation that are outside the, the small details of what's going on, but look, we need to work on figuring out a new plan. This is not working together. And, you know, certainly I think what you're suggesting and, you know, what we really support is, you know, really working relentlessly to try to get into one of these healthier options because the other options are pretty, you know, can be pretty traumatic on the kids. Definitely, definitely. And um, the hope is that before it gets to that um, that explosive point that the parties seeing the, the little bit, the problems along the way will take advantage of these other options, go to mediation, go to co-parent counseling, go to family counseling in order to avoid a situation where somebody's hitting a brick wall and the children are being put in the middle once again, which is very, very emotionally damaging for them. Right. So there's a couple of questions here that people wrote in that I want to bring to the surface here. One of them, and I thought this was a great question, is, you know, how does child support allocation work when there's a 50-50 joint custody? So is there still child support if there's a 50-50 shared custody arrangement between parents? You know, because we know as much as this is so not child-centered is sometimes people argue for more custody in order to get more money. So, um, you know, and we want custody to be in terms of what's best for the children, not what's best financially for one parent or another. So how does child support work with a 50-50 shared plan? 
It's it's based on a, on an adjustment to the support guideline calculations. So there is an adjustment made in 50-50 arrangements. But just because there's a 50-50 custody arrangement doesn't mean that there doesn't have to be any child support uh, paid. It really depends on the income of the parties and um, and based on the, the guideline formula, which they they have an adjustment for 50-50 custody, but it doesn't negate the need for support. Right, which is really helpful. And, you know, I want to underscore, I think, what we're both kind of putting forward is that really the money part and the kids part really should be separate. And I think that's why lots of times the child, the parenting agreements and custody are determined first before even looking at the financials and in hopes to really separate those out because, again, it violates one of our core tenets of child's best interest to link someone's decision about custody and whether or not they should have more involvement with another parent or not to the money um, and really tying that up. So, you know, it's something that I definitely want to raise here for our callers and just part of our consciousness about really maintaining what's best for kids. Um, Another question that came in that was interesting was, um, you know, what kind of say or involvement do kids or teens have? Because I think, you know, there's, and I've certainly heard it too, well, teens get to really decide where they want to go. You know, younger kids have to go where, you know, people send them, but the older kids can say where they want to go and then determine. So, you know, how true or not true is this? Um, well, I, they, the weight of the children's preference and um, testimony about what's going on in each household um, increases with age. Um, so the older a child gets into the teens, their preferences do carry more weight with the court than a younger child simply because they have a different perspective. They're also moving on with their adult lives. They have activities. They have jobs. Um, they're, they're almost adults. So they do have more of a say in where they stay. But that still doesn't mean that the courts blindly follow the dictates of a teenager. Um, so, and, and in, in terms of the courts, they don't always interview the children. If necessary, if they think that it will shed some light or it's important to hear from the child what's going on, then the child will be interviewed. Um, and in the conciliator's office, we only interview the children if we think it's going to be uh, aid in the parents coming to an agreement for the children. Um, because we don't want it to be a fact-finding mission at this level. So um, it does, but there is no set age. Like uh, many people come to me and say, well, I understand at age 12 the child can decide where they want to live. No, they can really never decide where they want to live. It's just how much weight the courts will give to their preference. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, on the other side of this, it's not the legal side, there are, you know, some important factors here is that teens, even if their parents were not getting divorced, would have moments where they love one parent and they can't stand the other parent, you know. So I have a teenager, I have two teenagers actually, and so they will vacillate and they will have weeks and months that they love and adore me and then weeks and months that they love and adore their dad and, you know, it'll go back and forth. And so, you know, it's really a you know, pretty significant thing to allow a momentary preference of a child 
to or a young person to dictate something as significant as where they're going to live because of the impact long term that that can have on their relationship and their development as they go through. Because teens' preferences, even if their parents weren't getting divorced, would vacillate all the time. Correct. And the thing is that um, children just naturally will play one parent against the other, whether they're in one household or two. And the thing is, usually in one household, there's the united front of the parents, and often in two households, there isn't. So it's very important for the parents, whether they're in one or two households, to be on the same page about important issues with the child, to minimize the child trying to play one against the other um, in order to get their preferred way in that moment. Right. And of course, the flip side of that is that at any given time, a young person, again, regardless of age, but teens are particularly susceptible to this, will see it as their role to protect whichever parent they feel may be the underdog at the moment. And so they may make a choice or decision out of a sense that they need to fill a gap or they need to protect in a way, which also isn't really about what's best for them. It's they're doing something out of what they believe is best for the parent. And as we've said, you know, the research showing, and again, whether we disagree about bedtimes or disagree about all kinds of things, that at the core, the healthy relationship with both parents is the most important thing for kids to have to grow up with the kind of security and um, that they need. So, Correct, correct. Yeah, so, you know, this ties into one of the questions that somebody wrote in, a concern that people wrote in, that someone wrote in, that I I think is really poignant, and it comes up a lot, I think, in my consults as well, which is, you know, I want things to go smoothly. How do I make this go smoothly? Uh, And maybe I know I've spoken to lots of people who are afraid to do anything because they're afraid of the bumpiness or, you know, can it get contentious or can it get difficult and things like that. You know, I want it to go smoothly, and, you know, from my perspective, perspective, even having an incredibly amicable divorce on my side, you know, smoothly is just like, you know, not the word I would use to necessarily describe, you know, divorce. But, you know, what what do we say to somebody who says, you know, I want to make sure it goes smoothly? Well, I think, I think first you have to kind of have realistic expectations and, and know that, you know, this is a difficult time that everybody's going through. So it, there's going to be some bumps in the road, um, but that um, to be in the frame of mind of the present and not to let things that the other person do, does trigger old wounds or issues and that the parents need to think to themselves, each parent has to step up to the plate to try and be the best parent that they can be in that moment and look at what is working best for the child. And if both parents can be in that space, then that's the best um, bet for it going smoothly. And, you know, if one parent isn't in that place but the other one is, if that parent will still stand in that space and look and say, you know, is this about me or is this about the child? And, you know, how can I handle this differently in order for the other parent to understand the importance of things, uh, of how my, my perspective of how things might be better for the child if we do it this way? I think that that helps things go smoothly. Um, if, you know, each party is entrenched in their positions and makes it more of a power struggle, 
that's less likely to have the transitions go smoothly. And and also to look at whether or not is this a you know a really big thing that's that I should be contentious about, or is it something that I can just let go um, and look at the bigger picture? Because the bigger picture for both parents should be that they the children get quality time with each of their parents, that they get to feel loved and supported by each of their parents, and that their memory of their childhood with their parents is one not filled with angst and, um, you know, discord and where they feel really torn between the two parents and that it becomes not about them but about the battle between their parents. Yeah, and the things that you said made me think of two points that I want to raise. And, you know, one of them is, is sometimes what we're calling and framing as those smaller battles, you know, just get a really tight stronghold on our minds. Like we are really convinced, you know, for example, that my child needs to go to bed at a certain time in order to be ready for school and able to do well. And so I have to make sure that the parenting agreement says that bedtime in both households will be at 8 o'clock or 8.30 or something like that, because if not, then I'm abdicating my responsibility as a parent to looking out for their best interests. And it seems like a completely reasonable response to that. What I often tell people, and but what it sets the other parent up for, is that one parent is still guiding how parenting will happen now in both households. And, you know, one of the things I often talk to parents about is, you know, my, the other parent doesn't know they have to go to bed at this time or they can't function in school or things like that, is that if what happens is that they go to bed at 8 or 8.30 in one household and they're going to bed at 9.30 or 10 in the other household, one of two things is likely to happen. One is that they will discover, well, the child doesn't really need as much sleep as I thought they always did and they're doing fine and maybe that works and it's okay. Or another possibility will happen is that the child will start to get cranky and throw tantrums and that parent who's left with the child who hasn't slept will soon realize that maybe 830 is a good idea and will make a switch over time. So just because something is one way in this moment doesn't mean that it's going to stay. So sometimes letting go of the battle and allowing the natural course of things to unfold is a way to get to what is really going to be best for the child. So, you know, I wanted to put that in there. And the other thing is that in terms of that idea of smoothly, is things going smoothly, I think is a, to get on my little soapbox here, is I think is a construct of our society that something is only good if it's easy or if it's smooth. But in fact, it's the bumpy stuff that builds our resilience, you know, that makes us stronger. And, you know, we can hate that phrase, but it just happens to be true, is that Kids have to encounter things that feel a little bumpy and then successfully navigate their way through to realize that they're strong enough and resilient enough to deal with bumpy because life is absolutely going to have bumpy no matter how much we try to protect our children. So sometimes allowing them to be in a bumpy place but in a relatively safe way is totally okay and, in fact, good for their development. You know, we don't want to make it, you know, battling and things like that, but, look, it's uncomfortable to have to – start to switch back and forth between two houses, well, it's uncomfortable when they get to middle school and suddenly have six different teachers to go to and they find their way through. So, you know, allowing that bumpy is okay. It doesn't have to be smooth in order to be good. That bumpy can be okay too. And I just wanted to bring that point in as well. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, So, you know, in terms of 
as we're, you know, coming down to some of the final minutes of this, you know, as you're sort of thinking about um, what are some of the, you know, what is it that kids really need from parents here? And you've said so many important things, but if you were going to kind of bring it down here, like what are some of the most important things that kids need from parents as they're navigating through this whole divorce piece? And maybe you want to bring in some of your quotes that you were sharing with us earlier as uh, something that will be useful to our conversation. What what children need most is to feel loved and supported um, and heard and validated by both of their parents. They need to feel that they have two strong footings in each of their parents, and they need to uh, they need to feel that they're the focus of the parents. They don't need to feel as if they have to make everything okay for the parents. And the other thing is, in, in addition for the parents to think about what is it that I want my child to remember about their childhood, mm. parents also have to remember their child is watching them and they are learning from them. And the way their parents interact is the basis for how children view relationships and how they're supposed to work. And so if the parents don't give them a good role model about how how relationships are going to work, they're going to then replicate the template of the relationship that their parents gave them, and they're going to end up in a relationship that's going to be very reflective of the dysfunction of their parents' relationship. And then it's very likely that their grandchild is going to be caught in the same crosshairs as their child was in this battle. And so the parents have to step back and think, you know, I made a choice to have this person be the parent of my child. And there were a lot of good reasons why I did that. And every time that that child looks at that other parent, they see all those good reasons. And the child identifies with each of those parents. And they, you know, if you're bad-mouthing or undermining the other parent, the child's going to, that's going to resonate with the child. The child's going to have their self-esteem affected. And this is the foundation of this child's entire life. And not just him or her, but for generations to come. So the parents really need to step back and understand the importance of the impact that they and their relationship with one another has on their child and try and change their interactions so that it's very healthy and supportive of the child um, and put that child first and put that child's needs first because it's the most important job in the world. Um, it's and- the mark that you leave more than anything else is your child. Um, so I think they they really have to understand the impact of their actions long-term and the importance of the role that they play in their child's life, not only during childhood, but for the rest of their lives. You know, I mean, that was so powerful, the way that you described it, and I'm so glad that you shared that. And I also want to say, because I know that people will, will call and write me and say, you know, we can't, I can't get divorced or I can't leave because that will destroy my child's life. And what I want to just really clarify is that neither you nor I, 
you know, have said that is that it's the divorce that ruins a child's life. It is that what you said has the foundational impact is what they learn from us in how we navigate through everything in life. And this is a major transition that calls into question just how we live with integrity and how, you know, what it means to be in the world and what does it mean to confront difficult situations and disagreements that these are the life lessons and, and, you know, may not be what we choose, but the divorce gives rise to the opportunity for children to learn incredibly powerful, powerful lessons from their parents. They do. And, and, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't, it's, it's not necessarily the divorce itself, but how the parents handle that transition. They're always, whether they're living under the same roof or not, they're always going to be this child's parent and they're, they're always going to be a family in some respects. So, um, the divorce itself, it should not be the impact. It, it should, you know, it, people may have to make changes and transitions in their lives, but it shouldn't be devastating if people handle it in a way that's going to be supportive of everybody. So, Lenora, in the final minutes here, you know, we've talked a little bit about what resources are out there to support people. And, you know, you were recently exploring the Divorce Companion and just want to invite you to share either a little bit about that or some other resources of how can people, you know, really commit themselves to doing divorce well and especially caring for their kids well. What can you offer here? Well, of course, the Divorce Companion is a wonderful tool because of its multimedia options and um, it's straightforward uh, approach. I think it's just a, a wonderful tool for people to um, explore uh, how they're feeling and how they're processing and moving forward in this transition. A therapist is, is you know, a family therapist, a co-parenting therapist is always uh, a wonderful resource. Um, there's also um, uh Mediation is, of course, a great resource because it does help parents stay focused on the best interests of the child as opposed to the other power struggles. Um, and then there's, of course, you know, many great books out there um, in terms of staying conscious. The conscious co- uh, the conscious parent book is um, another one where it helps parents just stay focused on what's happening in that child's life at that time. Um, are good ways for people to just stay uh, centered in their parenting roles um, together with their child. Right. So, you know, and actually it's a perfect segue for me to just mention a few things. And for people who are interested, the conscious parent Lenore just mentioned is a great resource. Um, next month's guest is actually going to be the author of the book Parenting Apart. And she has done both worked on a film about kids in divorce and also written in this incredible book on parenting apart um, after divorce and, you know, the co-parenting piece that can be a great resource for people. Um, and the Divorce Companion really being a resource of people who are at the early stages, either considering divorce or going through it, 
that can help you to make the mindful choices and to figure out how to navigate a lot of the tough situations and make plans. So these are certainly resources that are available. Um, Lenore mentioned, you know, therapists that are out there and various kinds of support and their support groups that are out there. Um, and certainly as a coach, this is the work that I do with couples and with individuals who are really committed to making mindful choices. And so we really encourage you to avail yourself of those opportunities. As I always say to people, this is not the time to go it alone. This is the time to say, let people help us because, you know, it is hard. By the time a couple gets to the place of considering divorce, it's really hard. There is typically a lot of sadness, anger, and hurt. It's just making the choice not to allow ourselves to become consumed by the anger, sadness, and hurt. And that's what all of us are here to support. And, you know, folks at Mainline Family Law Center, myself, you know, the family therapist you might reach out to is let us help you, let us support you, the resources, the divorce companion, parenting apart, conscious parenting. You know, it's going to require a commitment to that, but that's what we're all here to help you do. So we encourage you to reach out. And, you know, Lenore, if somebody wanted to ask you a question, um, is there a way that they can reach you if somebody wants to, you know, shoot you a quick email or something like that? Uh, they could always email me um, through Mainline uh, Law Family uh, Family Law Practice at L Myers M L Family Law Practice dot com. Okay, great. And um, anybody can reach me at Adina A D I N A at Divorce Essentials with an S dot net or on my website, divorceessentials.net. Of course, you can contact the Mainline Family Law Center at myhealthydivorce.com and uh, reach out to us with your questions. You'll receive a follow-up email tomorrow that also gives you some ways to reach out to us. And Lenore, would you close out this call with another, with one of the great quotes, but pick one that's one of your favorites that's sitting behind your desk there um, that you can share with callers? Uh Let's see. Uh, well, one of the ones that's on my wall is that um, it only takes a moment to wound someone, but it can take a lifetime to heal it. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.